Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of the 33 Strategies of War, part three of our three-part series, and today, we're looking at tactical warfare. A general fighting a war must constantly search for an advantage over the opponent, and the greatest advantage comes from the element of surprise, from hitting enemies with strategies that are novel, outside of their experience, and completely unconventional. Of course, over time, any strategy is going to end up being tried and tested and everyone knows about it. So the search for the new and unconventional is a constantly changing game. Any any strategy that was once new soon becomes old, so you've got to constantly be hunting for the new. Of course, we're looking at the context of politics, business, society. The way to win is to be unconventional and surprise your opponent at all times. Since no creature can survive without the ability to see or sense what is going on around it, you must make it hard for your enemies to know what is going on around them, including what you are doing. Disturb their focus and you weaken their strategic powers. Yeah, so if your enemy is in this cloud of ambiguity, they're probably going to, you know, like anyone, the, the perceptions are filtered through their emotions and they'll probably interpret everything in a way that they want to see rather than reality. Feed their expectations, manufacture reality to match their desires, and you can fool anyone. The best deceptions, they're based on ambiguity, mixing a little bit of fact plus a little bit of fiction so that it's impossible to disentangle one from the other. If you can control people's perceptions of reality, you control them. I'm a big uh, World War II fan. Uh, all the stories You're that come out of, of it. it. So there was a few of these stories. That <laughs> the stories. I find, it, story? I find it extremely interesting. Uh, you just that we're about to talk about Hitler and you're saying you're a big fan of <laughs> what's going on, mate. What's going on? I'm a fan of uh, the stories that come out of it. And uh, big Hitler, November 1943, he had a document distributed to all of his top generals. It was Directive 51. And this discussed his conviction that the Allies would invade France the following year and explained how they're going to beat them when the Allies jump into France. So for years, Hitler depended on this kind of intuition in making his most strategic decisions and time and time again, his instincts had been right. His intuitions had been on the ball pretty much the whole time at the beginning of the war. Yeah, the Allies had tried to make him believe that an invasion of France was imminent, but each time Hitler saw through their deception. This time he was not only sure that an invasion was going to come, but he felt he knew exactly where it would come, and he knew that that spot was the Pas du Calais, a region of France along the English Channel that was closest to Britain, and this part made so much sense to him. Mm. He knew that, look, the Pas du Calais, there's a number of major ports there, and of course, if allies are coming across, they're going to need some ports to land their soldiers, their troops. Uh, it was also the region where Hitler was installing his V1 and V2 rocket launches, and they were about to become operational. He was going to aim them at London and basically bomb Britain into submission. And so he knew that the English knew that they had to go and stop him before he started the bombing. So he said, yeah, part of Calais, that's the spot. That's it, generals. And in this Directive 51, Hitler warned his commanders to expect the Allies to wage a major deception campaign to cloak the time and place of the invasion. So he's kind of onto the cloak and deception, but he thought he was uh, he was onto onto them bit of game theory and, and all that. He, yeah, he was saying, look, this is what's happening. There's definitely going to be a lot of deception coming, so you've got to learn to read through the deception. Uh, and I suppose it's you know there's. Well, we're about to see there's a lot of confirmation bias coming into it. But Hitler had said that he'd infiltrated agents at every level of the British military. So he said, look, we're going to be getting heaps of information coming our way. I've got, I've got people on the inside that are going to send us the information we need that we're going to be able to see through any public deception that they're putting forward. In the beginning of 1944, information was coming from every angle. 
Firstly, a German agent in Turkey stole classified information, and this confirmed the Allies were going to invade France within the next few weeks. More information popped up in April when he was pouring through information reports every day, and he's getting really excited here because the pattern confirmed what his beliefs were. You know, everything pointed to the invasion of Pas de Calais. There's a couple of things that stood out in particular. There was a gathering of a large army in the south of England right near the crossing to the Pas de Calais. He demanded more and more information, so he sent out these high-flying reconnaissance planes. They took photos of the area, and they sent back these photos. They saw military camps being assembled. They saw thousands of tanks moving through the British countryside. They saw this big pipeline being assembled on the coast that he figured, obviously, they're going to be sending resources and supplies there. So he said, yeah, this is, this is all adding up here. Next, he found that he had these undercover agents in Switzerland, and he found that the Swiss had a request from the British to send all their maps of part of Calais. Uh, through this super secret message service, mm. and Hitler's like, "Yeah, there, I've got him here. I've got, got him, him here. Gonna, gonna trap him in." So it's all certain at this point in Hitler's mind. Now it's just a question of when. April turned to May. Hitler kept waiting, and on June five, he reviewed all of the information reports and confirmed that would be part of Calais. But the attack was still weeks away. He checked the weather reports and found that it was going to be a stormy night on June five. And he thought, "All right, there's no way they're going to, um, you know." jump in on a stormy night they need the daylight to see things so he popped a sleeping pill and went to bed knowing he'd be safe for at least one more day but then the morning of june 6 he was awoken and he had news that the allies had invaded normandy he's like what normandy yes. i thought they were coming to part of calais he's like no nah, no nah, i don't reckon this is it he's, so he had in, intelligence people on his side saying look ships they'd set off in the middle of the night sailed through the storms hundreds of parachuters had dropped from the skies and landed at the exact same time but Hitler said, nah, 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 nah. Part of Calais is where it's at. This is all some kind of ruse. It's almost like a fake attack to draw us away from Part of Calais. Then they'll hit us with the real attack. Mm. And obviously, uh, the Allies established the beachhead in Normanby, and the Germans went into full retreat. And when Hitler finally conceded that Normandy was the actual uh, attack location, uh, it was way too late. It was obviously the Allies, they utilized... Strategy 23, which we're going to talk about now, fact and fiction, weaving them together and fooling their opponent, Hitler, into making some unstrategic and bad decisions. So in trying to deceive Hitler of their true intentions, the Allies had a couple of problems. They knew that he was already suspicious in nature. They knew that they'd already tried and failed a couple of times to deceive him. They knew that he was going to be scrutinizing every single move that they made. But thankfully, whilst Hitler had his Germans gathering intelligence, the British were also gathering intelligence. They learned that he was growing more and more paranoid. He was isolating himself. He was overworked. He was struggling to trust even the closest uh, key leaders. And they knew that Hitler knew that they knew that he knew that they knew that the part of Calais was the spot. Mm. Of course, if they were like trying to send some obvious signals that it's gone to part of Calais, then Hitler would be like, oh, hang on. If they're sending me obvious signals, maybe mm. it's not and it gets in this endless loop. So they thought, okay, well, we can't do that. We need to be a little bit more subtle about how we do this. Yeah, so they actually sent, when they sent secret messages that they were, uh, you know, going to attack Par de Calais, that actually made the interpreter with that message believe they were going Par de Calais and the people around that. So it was very, very high level when they made the late strategic decision to go to Normby. Only a handful of people knew it at that stage. And that's the thing was what they did. They built these big military camps. They did. They knew what Hitler thought. So they did the things that he thought that they would be doing and let Hitler's mind fill in the rest of the gaps. It's not about having this overly sophisticated and showy distractions. What it's really about is a slightly altered version of reality, ever so slightly altered version of reality. 
So in this competitive world, deception is a vital weapon that can give you a constant advantage. You can use it to distract your opponents, send them on goose changes, waste valuable time and resources in defending attacks that are never going to come. But probably like most people, we hear the word deception and you think, hey, there's something wrong with that. We don't want to be deceiving people. We're not liars. We're not bullshitters. We're a bit more sophisticated than that. But in war, deception can be a critical tactic and tool to be using. In 1513, a new pope was crowned, Pope Leo. Now, the church now led many ways of dominating the political and economic power in Europe, but Leo, he wanted it to be now a great patron of the arts. So the earlier popes had started building the Basilica of St. Peter's in Rome, absolutely beautiful joint, uh, the seat of the Catholic Church, but it was now sitting there unfinished, and Leo, he wanted a bit of a legacy here. He wanted to finish the mighty project, but he needed to raise a lot of money to finish it and do all the other works he wanted to get done. So in 1517, Leo, he launched his campaign to sell indulgences. So as a Catholic practice, the faithful to confess their sins to priests who would then enforce some kind of penance that they would have to do to be rid of their sins. Uh, today, it's a rosary, but uh, in some of the more severe times, it might include fasts or pilgrimages. In this case, Leo was like, how about we get them to pay us and we'll mm. rid them of their sins? Oh, how good is that? It's a win-win, <laughs> isn't it? Like you could do evil stuff and say, oh, I'll just give Leo 50 bucks and I'm going to do that evil stuff and have no no dramas. Leo gets his 50 yeah. bucks. And He was saying that if you if you buy one of these indulgences, then you get to reduce your time in purgatory. That'd be, that's a good trade, yeah? Yeah, it's a great trade. <laughs> does it mean, does it up your likelihood of going up rather than down? I think... It probably you'd hope so. Anyway. That's what Leo, Leo would have to have Leo put that say, in the package. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think that's you. the upsell. Yeah, <laughs> the more money, the more uh, probability <laughs> you're getting in there. But so then, you know, this is all going well. They were raising plenty of money. They were getting through a, a lot of their big projects until this unknown priest, his name was Martin Luther from Germany. Uh, he tacked onto the door of this big church. He called it the Ninety Five Thesis, and he said, "Look, this selling of indulgences, this buying your way into heaven, this is not." This is not what God intended. This is not the Bible. You guys are making up some interesting stuff here. Now, Leo, he's a very powerful man. He thought surely one German priest poses no threat. I don't really care about this bloke. The church responded that the Pope was the highest authority in the church, even higher than Scripture. In fact, the Pope was infallible, and they quoted various theological texts to support the claims, and whoever is against these claims, including you, Martin Luther, you're a heretic. Yeah, he responded straight away because normally you've got the Pope which is almost enacting the will of Scripture, whereas now they're saying, no, hang on, the Pope is actually above it. Forget about it. Like Scripture, yeah, it's pretty good, but the Pope mm. is where it's all at. You need, to, you need to be on the Pope's side here. But what Luther was saying that actually all this stuff they're doing, it's not rooted in the Bible, it's not spiritual in nature, and this kind of authority needs to be challenged. You can't just have this Pope come in and just change the whole religion based on what he wants to do. What he did was he published his own response to the Pope's response to his initial thesis and he published them side by side and said, hey, hey look, read both and you guys work out for yourselves, what do you think? What do you reckon, the, the Pope's word or this word, what do you think? And by this stage, he had an audacious and mocking tone against the church and now the church started to think, all right, we might be dealing with a bit of a dangerous man here and they were right. So the Pope pondered how to get the German priest to Rome and trial him as a heretic but Luther, he accelerated his campaign, continuing to publish at an alarming and alarming rate, and his tone getting a bit more vitriolic. And he claimed it was the Pope who was a real heretic, and that they, the, the church and the Pope, they were the real antichrists. It seemed that every time the Pope or the church threatened him, 
he'd fight back. He'd fight fire with fire. He'd raise the heat even further. The Pope's officials went to Germany to try to arrest him, but big old Luther, he'd become somewhat of a, a celebrity, definitely become a beloved figure throughout the country, and everywhere the Pope's officials went, they got stoned by the locals of that town in Germany. He was arrested, but his supporters saved him and took him to live out his final years in a castle, actually. And the year he died, the ideas of the reform spread like wildfire. By 1526, a Protestant party was officially recognized in different parts of Europe, and this was the birth of the Reformation, and with it, the vastly worldly power of the Catholic Church. That obscure priest somehow won the war, and indulgences were a thing no more. Oh, nice. I like that. That rolled off nicely. Yeah. Uh, and so this is uh, the strategy of war number 25, occupy the moral high ground. Mm, very strong one. I think another one just came to mind, which popped up in the first episode, how powerful this is, perhaps the most powerful of the strategies. But Mahatma Gandhi, like one person, using nonviolence. And if you've seen the movie, I remember the, the Indians going out to all the British and they were getting smacked on the head and then just walking off. If you see that on TV... The people getting smacked up are the ones who are occupying the moral high ground Definitely. and the other ones just look like you know evil people. So any way you can position yourself to have the moral ground, then you'll be able to win the, the war with this strategy. Yeah, it's almost like once you've got the moral high ground, you've almost like if they're fighting from the bottom and you're like raising yourself, elevating yourself to a level above them morally, then it's like it's almost impossible to fight that kind of that kind of positioning. In almost all cultures, morality, the, the definition of good and evil, had originated as a way to differentiate one class of people from another. So over time, a system of ethics had evolved which kept society orderly. It separated the antisocial evil people from the social good people. Societies use ideas about what is and what isn't moral to create values that serve the society itself. Now, over time, if these values fall behind the times, morality slowly shifts and, and evolves into different places. So, as in war and in life, you are involved in a conflict with another person or group, there is something that you are fighting over that each side wants. It might be money, power, position, or so on. Your interests are at stake, so there's no need to feel guilty about defending them. But if you're just focusing on the money, power, and that's what you're, you're quarreling about... The person who actually finds out the moral sense in this situation is going to be the most dangerous and is going to be the person who likely wins. Yeah, the person fighting over a moral imperative, like yes, they're probably hungry for power or money or status or position in some way, but they're actually using morality as a bit of a cover, but they're actually motivated by something more than just self-interest. They're, they're, mm. In their minds anyway, they're fighting for the greater good. They're fighting for, for good versus evil. They're fighting from a moral position. And a bit of advice from Greener here is avoid wars of morality if you can. They are not worth the time and dirty feelings they churn up. There are plenty of moral warriors out there and they're the dangerous ones. It doesn't matter what you say or what you do. If they've got the moral high ground and think you don't have the same morality on the same plane that they do, then they're going to be one hell of a foe to try and beat. Another kind of war is communication. The battlefield for communication is the resistant and defensive minds of the people you want to influence. The goal is to advance, to penetrate their defenses and occupy their minds. Anything less than that is ineffective communication. It's just self-indulgent talk. You need to learn to infiltrate your ideas behind enemy lines, sending messages through little details, luring people into coming to the conclusions that you desire and into thinking they've got there by themselves. Someone who was a master at the art of communication was Alfred Hitchcock. And if you were working for him, 
the first time was a bit of a disconcerting experience, something you haven't really experienced before because he did not like to talk much on the set of the movies, just the occasional witty remark. Uh, like you're, you're actors, you're coming in as your big shot, big dog. Normally everyone's just sucking up to you. Alfred, you didn't really play this game. You kind of just didn't give him too much attention. You even fell asleep a few times in their, uh, in their presence. And people like your Leonardo DiCaprio is like, come on, Alfred, I'm a, I'm a big dog here. Give me something. <laughs> I, I assume you mean just like that, that type of person. Yeah, not that person in, in particular. Yeah, no, I wasn't. A yeah. few generations apart. Um, but yeah, he had bizarre ways of communicating. He didn't do what most directors did in that he wasn't giving uh, verbal feedback. He went about it in a very different way. So one example, he talks about the first day of shooting the the film, The 37 Steps. This is back in 1935. Hitchcock's two lead actors, uh, Madeleine Carroll and Robert Donat. The first day of filming was one of the more complex scenes. It was these two strangers that had somehow got handcuffed together early in the movie and they were forced to run through the Scottish countryside to escape the film's evil villains. Hitchcock, he gave them no real indication of what to do or how to act. Carol was someone who was particularly troubled by Hitchcock's attitude because most of the, the set she was on in Hollywood, she was always treated like royalty and now she hasn't been given any direction whatsoever. So to get over her nervousness, Carol chatted with Donat trying to get them to be in a collaborative mood. But when Hitchcock arrived on set, he clasped handcuffs to the pair straight away. He led them over to a dummy bridge through the props almost to the set where they were about to film. Then Hitchcock, he thought, oh, shit, where's that? Where's that? I've lost the key. I need to go attend a technical matter. I'll be back to unlock the key in no time. Yeah, he's fumbling around. Uh, he thought he'd set them free, but then he's disappeared for a few hours, in fact. He said, I'll be straight back, but soon minutes turned to hours. Hours turned into a half a day. Carol and Donut, they're sitting there. They're frustrated. They're embarrassed. All the crew members, they're doing what they would normally do. They're getting themselves set up, um, but these they're just stuck. They, they literally couldn't do anything. They felt absolutely humiliated. Hitchcock came back after lunch. He's probably chewing down a nice sausage roll or a meat pie. He said, oh, I forgot about you guys. You're still here. And he, he managed to find the key unclasp them uh, but these two they were usually you know the cool calm collected unflappable suave actors they're now super awkward like they've been trapped uh, in front of everybody chained together they couldn't do anything and they just felt so awkward but the beauty of Hitchcock's work here was that now they didn't have to act as if they were two awkward people who'd been handcuffed together it just naturally that's how they felt and the, the scene actually flowed super smoothly in that it seemed authentically awkward which it was I like it. Hitchcock is a bit of a wild man. Four years later, he made Rebecca with Joanne Fontaine and Lawrence Olivier. And uh, the 21-year-old Fontaine was in her first leading role alongside none other than an all-time genius of acting in Olivier. Now, normally you'd think a director would want to ease her insecurities in her first big role, but Hitchcock, he did the absolute opposite. He spread a rumor that Olivier separately wanted his own wife, Vivian, to get cast for the role instead and... Olivier, who was, uh, had the reputation at this stage, he was a little bit disappointed with what he got. <laughs> so this young, poor young girl, Joan Fontaine, she felt so terrified. Uh, she felt isolated. She felt unsure. She felt like she didn't belong. And of course, that's exactly what she needed to do because in this movie, she played the perfect part of this insecure, innocent young woman. And uh, that's exactly what Hitchcock wanted out of her. Again, she didn't need to act because that's literally how she felt. So Hitchcock, he mistrusted language for communication. He knew that action was a better way of communicating and he always preferred visuals over words. 
He told this story to interviewers whenever they asked him about his methods. He said that one day he was a, like a five or six-year-old kid and he misbehaved. And I guess what most most parents would probably do, maybe they'd yell or maybe they'd hit their kid. But what, um, what Hitchcock's dad did, he actually said, okay, go to the police station and take this note. The policeman, he read the note and put him straight in jail and said, this is what we do to naughty little boys like you. And he left him there for a couple of minutes. And Hitchcock was shitting himself, mm. being in a jail cell with weird smells and, and these authority figures that he, he had no idea who they were or what they were doing. But all of a sudden, he really felt what it meant to misbehave. If, if the dad had yelled at him or whacked at him, he would have subtly rebelled over the years. But by being thrown in jail and feeling what it felt like, he truly understood. It's incredible parenting. I remember I had a friend who once ran away from home and the parents said, all right, off you go. <laughs> came back pretty quick after yeah. realized how much you needed the parents. Got hungry at lunchtime. So Got came hungry. Home. Oh, back, so that's genius. So strategy 30 is penetrate their minds. And this is about communication strategies. You may have brilliant ideas, the kind that could revolutionize the world, but unless you can express them effectively, they'll have no force, no power to enter people's minds in a deep and lasting way. Let's say you're dealing with people who are bored and have short attention spans. How the hell are you going to put information to them when they're half asleep? So if you just don't really put salt and pepper on your message whatsoever, you might as well not say anything at all. Instead, you might do Hitchcock style. You might try and entertain them. You might find a way to sneak your ideas through the back door through their mind subconsciously. Or if you think about with leaders, people who think they're probably better than everybody else, you've got to be careful and indirect. You can't tell them what they should be thinking. Perhaps you need to use more sneaky methods, maybe use third parties or use other authority figures so that you can disguise the source of your ideas that you're trying to spread, make them think that they thought of it themselves or somebody else that they respected thought of it. So what you need to pay attention to is not simply the content of your communication, but also the form, the way you lead people to the conclusions you desire rather than just telling the message in just so many dull, boring old words. Yeah, if you want someone to change a bad habit, it's more effective than just trying to tell them how you should quit that habit. Make them feel what it's like, actually, for other people when you do that habit. Maybe you give them a little bit of taste of their own medicine. If you want people with low self-esteem to feel better about themselves, you can't just say, oh, no, no don't worry, you're actually pretty good. Yeah. That's obviously not going to work at all. You need to somehow prod them into accomplishing something tangible. If you give them that real experience where they can actually feel that self-esteem, it's got to be much better. Similarly, if you want to communicate an important idea, you can't just preach it and tell what to think. You need to make your readers or listeners connect the dots themselves, come to the conclusions on their own. That way, it makes them internalize the thoughts that you're trying to communicate and by seeming to emerge from their own minds, they're going to believe it a lot more than you just telling them what to think. So that's strategy 30, penetrating their minds, communication strategies. The ability to reach people and alter their opinions is a serious affair. It's a one hell of a task and should be as serious and strategic as war. You must be harsher on yourself and on others because failure to communicate is not the fault of the dull-witted audience but of you being the unstrategic communicator. So we've been on one hell of a journey. Reading this book, I had all sorts of light bulb moments and I think I took one or two steps away from being a naive pawn in the world to hopefully the courage to be a creative fighter where it's necessary. Hopefully, uh, we've sold you on the fact that there are moments in life where you need to go into war and you're better off being strategic, whether that be trying to attack your opponent or it might actually be trying to maneuvering in a way that um, you, you avoid war altogether but still still win in some kind of way. 
So after those 33 strategies of which we covered, I think 13 of them, Robert Greene's got six fundamental ideals that you should aim for in transforming yourself into a strategic warrior in everyday life. The first point we can take is look at things as they are, not as your emotions color them. In strategy, you got to see that your emotional responses to events is a kind of disease that must be remedied. Fear is going to make you overestimate your enemy and act too defensively. Anger and impatience is going to draw you into rash action that will cut off your options. Overconfidence, particularly after a, a success, will make you go too far. Love and affection, they'll blind you to the treacherous maneuvers of those apparently on your side. Even the subtlest gradations of these emotions can color the way you look at events. War demands the utmost in realism, just seeing things as they are. The second point from Robert Greene is judge people by their actions. The brilliance of warfare is that no amount of eloquent talk can explain away a failure on the battlefield. People are going to say whatever they can. Uh, They're going to put on all kinds of fronts. But really, the truest way to judge somebody is by their actions, not by what they say, but what they do. Yeah, someone who's just all talk, all talk, all talk, I think sometimes you might be fooled that from, from these people, but you shouldn't ever be fooled. You just should look at the actions and the results they've had in the past and just judge them by that alone. Number three, depend on your own arms. In the search for success in life, we're going to rely on things that seem simple and easy that have worked before. This could mean accumulating wealth or resources or allies or the latest technology. This is being materialistic and mechanical, but true strategy is psychological It's a matter of intelligence and all this material force that you accumulate might not help you in in times of war. Everything in life can be taken away from you and generally will at some point. Your wealth will vanish, the latest gadgetry suddenly becomes old school, your allies might desert you. If your mind is armed with the art of war, there is no power that can take that away from you. In the middle of a crisis, your mind is going to find the right solution. The fourth point by Green Man is worship Athena, not Audis. This is an interesting one. So the cleverest immortal of them all was the goddess Metis and Zeus impregnated her and then Zeus ate her and then gave birth to Athena through Zeus's head. Jesus. But So the good thing was being the daughter of both Zeus and Metis, she was blessed with the craftiness of Metis but also the warrior mentality of Zeus. She was deemed by the Greeks to be the goddess of strategic warfare whereas Ares on the other hand, he was the god of war but in its direct and brutal form. The Greeks despised Ares because he was just so brutal. Whereas Athena, who was equally brutal in her warfare, she actually found respect because she was intelligent and subtle about the way that she went about things. I think if you're going to take anything away from the book, and it's that if you're interested in war, it's not about the violence and brutality and the waste of lives and resources, which is probably what Ares would be all about, all about just the violence. But being Athena means you're focusing on the rationality and pragmatism and ideals such as winning without bloodshed wherever you can. Your goal is to blend philosophy and war, wisdom and battle into this unbeatable blend. And number five is to elevate yourself above the battlefield. In war, strategy is the art of commanding the entire military operation. Tactics, on the other hand, is the skill of forming up the army for battle itself and dealing with the immediate needs of the battlefield. So most of us in life, we're on the, on the ground in the trenches, Um, being tacticians, we're not strategists going above the battlefield and broadening our perspectives. 
Yeah, we become so enmeshed in the conflicts we face that we can think of only how to get what we want in this immediate battle. We never stop to go that level above the battlefield and think longer term. Thinking strategically, it's tough. It's unnatural. You may imagine you're being strategic, but really you're just being tactical. So it's really tough to push outside that realm of the the short-term tactical, but it's vitally important to elevate yourself above the battlefield. Absolutely. Number six, spiritualize your warfare. Every day, you're going to face battles. But the greatest battle of all is within yourself, your weaknesses, your emotions, your lack of resolution and seeing things through to the end. So whilst you're declaring war on your enemies, you also need to declare war on yourself. As a warrior in life, you welcome combat and conflict to prove yourself, to better your skills, to gain courage, confidence and experience. Instead of repressing your doubts and fears, you must face them down and go to battle with them. You want more challenges and you want to invite more war into your life. This way, you're forging the warrior's spirit and only constant practice will lead you there. Strategy becomes a lifelong challenge and a source of constant pleasure in surmounting difficulties and solving problems. 